Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The pandemic, of course, doesn't think for itself, but it's becoming increasingly obvious that uh, it does discriminate. It certainly discriminates against people of color and people from different economic communities. I haven't read, though, much recently about the impact of the pandemic on the politics of gender and on women in particular. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk to Caroline Heldman. She's a professor at Occidental College uh, in Los Angeles and the co-author of a number of interesting books about politics and gender. Uh, Her last book was Sex and Gender, or I think it's an upcoming book, Sex and Gender in the 2016 presidential election, uh, and she's also the co-author of Women, Power, and Politics. Uh, Caroline, um, why haven't we heard or read much about the politics of gender in the age of the pandemic? I think the focus is on day-to-day survival and death counts, and so a lot of the the nuances of how this is not affecting everyone the same um, is getting lost. I know the framing that's out there is that the pandemic is a great equalizer, um, but instead uh, it's quite the opposite, right? It actually exposes uh, existing inequalities. It exacerbates uh, existing inequalities. Um, And so it's interesting, you know, patriarchy doesn't just disappear during a pandemic. Um, It actually becomes uh, more intense uh, at the same time that we're focusing on it less. And I'm guessing that the many uh, single parent families, which tend to be headed by women who have one or more jobs, these have been particularly badly hit by, by, by the pandemic, given how difficult it is now to travel from job to job, and given the way in which many of these menial jobs have been lost. We're definitely seeing a a very clear data story when it comes to gender in the pandemic. Um, Women are being harder hit financially, uh, harder hit domestically, um, and men are actually being hit uh, harder in terms of health outcomes uh, due to conventional modes of masculinity. But if you go to the the first big impact with women um, and finance or women's economic status, you know, women earn less. Um, they save less because they earn less and have a smaller safety net. They're more likely to be in precarious jobs that don't have the same job protections. Um, they also perform an awful lot of unpaid work uh, that the New York Times has estimated at $10.9 trillion annually, which undergirds you know, our formal uh, economy. So it is no surprise that what we're seeing right now is that women are actually losing their jobs more than men um, at a rate of, of 55% in April. And more specifically, that uh, in different domains, they're actually being fired at higher rates than men. So for example, in education, women are 77% of that labor force, but 83% of the layoffs. In retail, they're 48% of that labor force, but 61% of layoffs. So we see um, the lesser value of women's work 
uh, in various industries, uh, now leading to higher rates of unemployment, um, not to mention the amount of unpaid labor that women are now doing more intensely in the home. It's pretty disturbing, those numbers you just put out. Why is that? Why are women being laid off? Are they just, is it simply a matter of discrimination? Well, discrimination certainly plays a role in it, but discrimination, that, that word um, feels to me like there's some intention. And I think um, what's what's more at play here is uh, unconscious bias in that we simply value women less, even when they're performing the same work. Um, we call this, for example, the feminization of labor. So we know that when women go into male-dominated industries and perform the same level of work at the same you know, quality, um, we know that the, the value of that labor goes down, the value of that industry the, as, as indicated by pay. So for example, as women have, have moved into medicine, the status and pay of medicine has actually declined in real dollars. Um, so we have an unconscious bias and it's not just men, it's men and women alike. Um, we value women's labor less. Um, and this has something to do with the fact Two, that women perform a lot of unpaid labor, um, and it's all tied into you know put a put a bow on this. Uh, women are performing free labor that's actually very valuable and not getting paid for it in the home. Um, at which Chase Manhattan Bank's um, in their their annual analysis puts it at one hundred thirty thousand dollars for women performing you know the the tutor, the wet nurse, um, the chauffeur, the cook, all of those activities that are unpaid in the home that support the paid labor force. Um, so we don't value women's labor there. We don't even call it work. We don't even use that, that label um, to dignify it. And then in the workplace, we also value women's labor less for doing the same job. So this is a very long way of saying, I think it, it's implicit bias that if you're looking at two employees who are going to be laid off and one is a man and one is a woman, men and women alike are more likely to lay off the woman. What about the nature of virtual work? You're a professor at Occidental. You're obviously working from home. Uh, we're all becoming, for better or worse, Zoom laborers. Um, do you think that the virtualization of labor um, will impact better or worse on, on women or men? Or, or, or is that uh, the wrong question to ask? No, I think it's it's absolutely the right question to ask about the future of work. Um, I think the silver one silver lining of this pandemic is that it has revealed that a lot of the constraints and expectations of the workplace um, that you show up from you know eight to five, um, that you're in an office space. Um, it's exploded that you can actually perform work uh, and have more free time without a commute. Um, you can perform the same high quality of work from home. So I think that that will positively impact everyone, um, men and women alike, gender non-conforming folks. Um, at the same time, during the pandemic, um, I think it might actually harm women in that uh, women do across the globe three times more domestic labor than men. Um, so we're certainly seeing that now in the pandemic, right? That, for example, in the U.S., that ratio is only, you know, women are only doing twice as much domestic labor as men. Um, and then when you ask men about it, uh, there was a recent uh, survey that was published in a number of, of, of national newspapers that half the men in the study in the U.S. said that they believed that they were doing most of the homeschooling um, and only 3% of women agreed. So there's not only this huge difference and gap in terms of who, who's performing the domestic labor, the child care, the cooking, the cleaning, homeschooling, um, but men who are now 
quarantined in the home with their wives and children believe that they're doing more work than they're actually doing. So um, I think that the flexibility will help all of us, but I worry uh, that uh, moving work to home might actually increase the burden on women long-term post-pandemic. Uh, in your view, Caroline, are men irreformable? Uh, I, I've read a couple of pieces suggesting that as men spend more time at home during the pandemic, they understand the challenges uh, of domestic labor, the cooking, the, the child care, uh, the cleaning, and that this enforced uh, domestic experience, which we're all going through now, will actually represent a wake-up call for some men, if not all men. Andrew, I don't definitely don't think men can't be reformed. I think men are <laughs> men are the products of our culture, and if you look at who is raising men uh, and women, it's predominantly mothers, right? So, um, primary homemakers are still women. So, if we want to look at you know how what types of humans we are producing, we have to look at lots of different societal institutions um, with an intense focus on. Uh, the primary homemakers. And you bring up a very good point. Another kind of silver lining of this pandemic, this very dark cloud, um, is that we will likely see men take on more of the domestic work because once you do it, you're actually more likely to do it long term. And I think it's wonderful for fathers to to connect with their children. Um, younger men, younger fathers, uh, Gen Xers, uh, you know, Gen Yers and Gen Zers, um, are spending more time with their children and they're experiencing much better relationships with their children as a result. So you've just named another silver lining, which is that there is a possibility that uh, once men are in the home doing this, they will see the benefits of it personally and also maybe have a better appreciation. And I would extend that beyond just this, uh, just, just domestic responsibilities. I would assume that we will place a higher value on uh, low paying essential jobs and maybe we'll compensate them better. Um, I can also see us after the pandemic, a silver lining um, being that we will as humans emphasize the things that actually make us happiness according to happiness studies, uh, which are service to others and connecting with others. So I'm hoping that we see more men doing domestic chores. Um, we see greater work flexibility. Um, we see a better value to essential low-paying jobs, which shouldn't be low-paying. And then we see more of an emphasis on connecting with others and providing service to others. I noted earlier, Caroline, that you're the co-author of Sex and Gender in the 2016 presidential election. Let's fast forward four years to 2020. Um, two men in their 70s going head to head. Um, what does that tell you about progress when it comes to sex and gender in American presidential politics? Well, I wrote my first book about um, the possibility of a female president in 2007 um, when people had a very rosy picture that Hillary Clinton was going to be the eventual nominee and had a great shot at the White House. And I've studied the history of this. Um, it's actually been uh, over 130 women have put their name in the hat uh, since 
Uh, the first woman did so, Victoria Woodhull, um, in uh, 1872. And since that time, uh, 12 women have made major bids and they have all experienced the same barriers. They're not taken seriously by the press, by the people. Uh, they come up against these very masculinized notions of leadership, um, which I think can, really came to a head in 2016, where you see this performance of masculinity on the Republican uh, primary stage like we've never seen before, where you have, you know, candidates uh, talking about doing push-ups and, you know, outmanning each other and uh, doing, you know, the, the size of one's hands, which is a metaphor for something else. Um, it's fascinating to me that people think that this office is open and democratic to women, but it really isn't. I mean, if you think about the way in which we view this office, it is the highest, most masculine office when it comes to leadership. Um, and I say this looking at, at historically, even recent history, even when men are running in this race, they try to feminize the, the opposition, right? So you have Michael Dukakis, who wasn't man enough to wear the helmet in 1988. You have John Kerry and his Botox. Um, you just have this constant game of who can be more hyper-masculine uh, in order to hold the presidency, even when only men are running. So when you put women in the ring, like we did this time, uh, six women, actually, I would argue five of them highly qualified. It is no surprise to me that it then winnows down to one man who has, you know, 22 allegations of sexual violence against him, Donald Trump, and then Joe Biden, who has seven complaints of uh, sexual harassment or inappropriate touching, and then one very serious rape allegation. Um, it's not... It's not a surprise, given the ways in which Americans conflate hypermasculinity and whiteness with the office of the presidency. Uh, Caroline, I know this is hard to imagine, but we have currently a president, of course, who is in many ways a parody of masculinity, uh, you know, a sort of an American version of Mussolini. Um, but imagine if Hillary Clinton was president right now. She wouldn't have been able to stop the pandemic. Perhaps she would have been a little bit more efficient in dealing with the early signs of it. But getting beyond that, how do you think the politics of gender would have played out with a female president addressing the pandemic? Of course, we have female leaders in Germany and New Zealand and Taiwan who have seemed to have dealt much more effectively with the pandemic than certainly Donald Trump. That's a great question, Andrew. Um, I think I think in two ways, having Hillary Clinton or another woman in, in the White House would be different than the way Donald Trump is managing things. Um, first off, uh, he, by my count, waited 71 days to take affirmative action. The only action he took during that time, and that's from being informed about it to actually stating some policy, which I would argue has been rather confusing. Um, we know that, so the first way is that there would have been a quicker response. Um, we know that uh, there are only 7% of world leaders who are women, but if you look across the board at how they've responded to this, they've responded sooner and more efficiently, uh, more effectively. So in Iceland, Thailand, Germany, New Zealand, Finland, the list goes on. Um, female leaders have done, I think, two things um, that are different from a lot of their male counterparts. And one is uh, using empathetic leadership. And I don't think there's anything inherent about women being more empathetic. But we do know that they are more concerned, for example, of putting people um, 
over profits than male leaders on average. The second uh, is the reliance on experts. So I think Hillary Clinton would have relied on experts. And when the first reports were coming in via intelligence agencies uh, in November and December, um, she likely would have had a plan in place at that time. I think the second big way in which um, having Hillary Clinton or anyone else, frankly, as president respond to this crisis is that they wouldn't have done it with what you, you know, you've labeled this kind of caricature of um, this bravado masculinity. Um, and it shouldn't matter as much as it does, but Donald Trump is really setting the tone for how a lot of American men are responding. So his his uh, alliance of um, putting together social distancing and basic, you know, safety procedures uh, as being vulnerable or weak or feminine um, is, is a clear message that he's sending to American men, his followers in particular, and it's resonating. So if you look at the data, we know that men are less likely to socially uh, distance, they're less likely to wash their hands, they're less likely to wear face masks than women are. Um, and some of this comes from the, you know, the fact that that men are drenched in masculinity and showing signs of weakness or, or vulnerability are associated with femininity, um, which is you know, it, not something, if you're raised in US culture, it's seen as a bad thing. The, the more a man is like a woman, that is seen as a negative thing. Um, so for example, with hand washing, we know that 91% of women say they're washing their hands frequently versus only 85% of men. That's a pretty big gap. Uh, so Donald Trump performing this kind of caricatured hypermasculinity is sending a very clear sign to some men who are concerned about their masculinity, their very fragile masculinity, um, that the way in which you perform in vulnerability is actually by putting yourself at more risk. So I would love to do a study of how many men put themselves at risk because they followed the lead and example of Donald Trump during this crisis. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the three countries which seem to be the worst hit and have had the worst management of the crisis are all run by these uh, rather pathetic, uh, tyrannical men. Uh, Trump, of course, in America, Putin in Russia, and above all else, Bolsonaro in Brazil, who seems to me to be the textbook example of a, of a, of a Timpot male dictator unable to confront the virus. But Leaving Bolsonaro, perhaps, Caroline, for another conversation, uh, more positively, of course, Joe Biden has promised that he will pick a running mate who's female. I think he made that choice just before the, the, pan, the, the real sort of heart of the, the pandemic hit. But do you expect the female vice president choice during the pandemic or because of the pandemic to be more than just symbolic? I think anytime you put a woman in a significant position of leadership, um, we see some concrete results from that. Uh, what we know from a couple decades of research is that women in positions of power make decisions differently than men in positions of power in two primary ways. Uh, one is that they consider more factors, more science, more detail in their policy decision making. And the second thing is that they're more likely to put issues affecting uh, marginalized groups, whether it's women or people of color or people with disabilities, et cetera, on the public agenda. And so um, if Joe Biden, you know, does put a, a woman uh, VP on the ticket, which he's promised to do, whether, you know, it's Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams or any number of the very highly qualified women who are available, um, 
it will have significant policy effects if he is elected. We'll see the agenda shift and we'll probably even see the ways in which policymaking happens in the White House shift to be more inclusive. Do you have somebody who you would like to see as vice president, Elizabeth Warren, perhaps? You know, at this point, I would almost be happy with any of the hundreds of qualified women. Um, you know, it's it's been uh, watching Geraldine Ferraro and then even Sarah Palin um, as this kind of, you know, the, the, the uh, crumbs, if you will, of what women get at the highest levels of American politics. Um, I think that even if this vice president, um, whoever she may be, is not my favorite pick, uh, the symbolic effect of her candidacy and possibly her tenure um, will be profound for little girls. Uh, you, you you touched on the Tara Reid scandal earlier. Without wishing to get into that particular uh, issue, is there anything about Joe Biden that speaks of a new kind of male politician, someone more open to the politics of gender, or is it just more of the same with him, do you think? Well, Joe Biden has a really interesting uh, political history when it comes to women's issues. Um, he does have these allegations. And, you know, as somebody who believes survivors, um, I uh, am very conflicted about whether or not I can cast a vote for someone with such a serious allegation of sexual violence. On the other hand, he has two decades of uh, pushing for gender justice. Um, he has passed major legislation, uh, the Violence Against Women's Act. He was the champion of that. Um, I was one of the early architects of the campus anti-rape movement that launched in 2013 in the U.S. He was our biggest champion. He is the reason that that got on the national agenda. And if you look at the history of that, it went from you know this small coalition of students and faculty putting this on the national agenda into the Me Too movement just a few years later. So he really got that ball rolling. Um, it's, it is a genuine um, you know, ethical or moral conflict um, for me, but I do believe um, that just based on his policy record, if he is elected president, we will see um, probably the biggest shift we've seen in US politics uh, when it comes to discussing and championing um, gender justice issues. Wow, Caroline, you've been able to cheer me up. There's been so much bad news. Finally, having someone with some potentially good news. Uh, uh, finally, uh, you, you you teach politics and gender. You, you you spend your time assigning books and reading to your students. What should people be reading as they're stuck at home to give them some perspective on the crisis, maybe stuff associated with gender or otherwise, fiction or nonfiction, just some great books that will keep people occupied? Well, and a great question. I think it's uh, it's hard to know how much news we should consume and how much we should be talking and focusing on the pandemic when we're living it. Um, I am certainly um, someone who's consuming a lot of news, but I also like to um, use literature non and, and nonfiction um, to pull me out of this. So one book I would highly recommend uh, is Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Shamali. Uh, it's an, a great look at um, the current state of girls and women globally. And as the title suggests, um, it's actually okay to be angry about it. It's it's happened for too long and it, it's been invisible and unaddressed for, for long enough that, that we can actually be angry about um, what is happening to girls and women globally. Um, 
Then I would also recommend, uh, I'm going back to the classics. I'm reading uh, Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome uh, and working my way through a list of recommended classics uh, and spending this time uh, to catch up on, on things that I feel like you know I haven't had time to do in the last decade. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.